0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihae Razazan. On this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
1: When you look at the sheer numbers of people in the streets, and it's not just young people, it's young people, old people, men, women, students, like everybody, everybody, all the generations in the streets, you can say it is revolutionary. It is a, a revolution is is ongoing and it's achieving something. And there is a huge determination and the energy that it is releasing, the
0: creativity is so amazing to see. We speak with Algerian scholar and activist Hamza Hamushin about the ongoing historic protest movement in Algeria, its endurance and its promise for the future of the country. Stay with us. Sixty years ago, Algeria was known as a poster child for anti-colonial revolution and became a magnet for liberation struggles worldwide after reaching independence in 1962. Half a century later, the Algerian people are back in the streets, this time for a revolution against tyranny and corruption, national independence having failed to deliver the full emancipation that Algerian citizens feel they deserve. For the past six months, millions of Algerians of all ages and from all walks of life have been demonstrating in every major city in Algeria every Friday in massive numbers without fail, rain or shine, through the worst heat wave the country has known for years. Nothing has managed to break the movement's momentum so far. In a recent piece in Jacobin magazine, Algerian scholar and activist Hamza Hamouchen says, quote, Algeria is in the throes of a revolutionary movement, but having overthrown dictator Abdelaziz Bouteflika last spring, the movement must now find a way to return the class issue to the center of politics, or risk watching the revolutionary moment slip away. Khalil Bendib spoke with him about the movement, its endurance, and its promise for the future of the country.
2: Hamza, we've seen the results won by the Algerian people on the streets over the past few months. The resignation of the president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, the postponements of the elections, and many other small and symbolic victories. A lot has happened. And yet, the people of Algeria are still in the streets. They're still not satisfied. Update us a bit about the current situation. Are the people still protesting? Uh, I noticed from here, we no longer see them in the international broadcast news.
1: Yes, as you say, many, many achievements and symbolic victories have been in, in a way achieved by the Algerian people in the last six months including the resignation of the forcing out of the um, President Bouteflika, the cancellations of the presidential elections that have been um, scheduled for the 4th of July. But at the same time, the main demands for a democratic transition has not been attained yet because the military are persisting in holding elections as soon as possible, which means really a status quo. So the people are still protesting every Friday and Tuesday for the students. It's true that the numbers are not the same at the same levels compared with the month of March and April. But people are still protesting and marching in the streets, uh, in the tens of thousands, in every part of the country, from the north to the south and from the east to the west asking for a civilian state asking of the end of the military control by what i call the general dictator gait salah asking for democratic rights that I have not achieved yet because repression is still ongoing people are still not allowed into the capital on fridays especially coming from the east or the west there are still political detainees the people who dared to wave the um, Berber flag. So in a nutshell, I would say people are still protesting for the democratic change that they went for to the streets since 22nd of February.
2: Okay, so let's go a little bit deeper in the details here, in the specifics. Uh, They're not allowing people to come from outside of Algiers into the city. Is that one of the, the problems?
1: So that's one, one of the problems on Friday. So there will be huge queues like in the streets and the, and the highways of people trying to come in. So that's one right being abused. Uh, we talk also about the freedom of the press and the media. So people are seeing that most of the public and private channels are not like the Western media, are not broadcasting at all or not talking at all about the protest movements and the ongoing revolutionary process. And as I said, the question of political prisoners and also violence. Let's slow
2: down and talk a little bit more about the the freedom of the press. There are newspapers as we speak that are very openly and very freely expressing their dissent. Why is that not enough in your estimation?
1: Because when we talk about the audio media, The audiovisual media, TV and radio, these are dominated by either the public or the private sector. And most of them are, in a way, on the side of the counter-revolution. Of course, there are some independent voices and critical voices in the written press, like Al-Watan, Al-Khabar, Liberté. But my opinion, I don't think that's enough.
2: So, when you say both the public and private press, usually, traditionally, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, there was only government press. And we were complaining about that back then. Now that there's a private press, we're still having a problem. Why are the private media still siding with the government and obscuring reality?
1: So, because most of those private media outlets are owned by oligarchs and they have big interests in maintaining the status quo and, of course, safeguarding their interests. So at some point, they were on the side of President Bouteflika and his re-election. And when the equation changed to the favor of the General Gaïd Saleh, we've seen how they suddenly changed to glorifying the general dictator. So for me, glorifying the general dictator means glorifying the status quo, means being on the side of the counter-revolution.
2: So you call him the general dictator, and I'm sure you're not the only one. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but <laughs> even in a country like the United States, or a country like the UK where you live, it's hard sometimes to tell exactly who's pulling the strings from where. People on the street are demanding the end of the current regime which is basically military based how can people tell that that has come to an end i mean what exactly are they asking for for example they're refusing the elections because as you said that would perpetuate the status quo how will the algerian street the algerian people know for sure that the status quo has been broken that now there are new voices there are new people who are actually truly representative
0: First
1: of all, the demands are broad. So we cannot say that the demands are very specific, saying exactly what they want. Because it's about democratic change, it's about freedom, it's about human rights. So in that sense, they are broad. How can the Algerian people know exactly that they are changing radically the regime? I think it depends on your political background and your ideological background. So if you believe that a simple transition means elections, uh, the regime can you know, come back in different ways. If you mean a radical democratic change which goes through constituent assembly, that means opening the space. For other political forces, means more rights, uh, means more political involvement from society. But that's not even guaranteed. And we can see the case in Tunisia where the Ancien Regime, even with the Constituent Assembly, came back in a way. Exactly. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah. So, so how do we avoid what is seen by the rest of the world as a successful transition in, in Tunisia? How do we avoid the pitfalls of that type of situation, how do you truly bring back more voices into the mix and not just the same old people?
1: My opinion is by linking the political with the economic question.
2: Mm.
1: For me, there will be no democracy without economic democracy, without economic justice. Because if we look at the case in Tunisia, what happened really is a neoliberal democratic transition. So basically what led the people to rise in the first place, those neoliberal economic policies that impoverished them for a long time, that dispossessed them for decades, came back in force after the the revolution. So it's the same economic policies being imposed on them. Privatizations, not much involvement of the public authorities, and no economic sovereignty. So So these are very important issues when we talk about the algerian context it's the same thing you cannot have democracy without having jobs without having decent housing without having popular sovereignty on natural resources without having a say in the economic model so for me we need to put end first to those neoliberal policies that are creating unemployment that are creating poverty uh, that are undermining the economic sovereignty of the country. In a way, we need to wed social justice and economic justice with uh, political freedoms.
2: So, as happened in both Tunisia and Egypt, even a transition to ostensibly different political movement, like a Nada, like uh, the Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, did not bring any relief in terms of the economic policy. As you said in the previous interview, keeping the economics outside of politics is not working because the same yeah. basic root problems that people are having, they're starving, they're not able to survive under neoliberal policies, is going on whether we're under Sisi or under uh, Morsi, under Nahda, under Sebsi. And yet, in both cases, in Egypt and in Tunisia, we had ostensibly clean elections that brought this movement, this Islamic Brotherhood movement to the fore. And that didn't do much for the population. It only continued the misery. How do you avoid such an outcome if we do believe in some kind of electoral system to help guide the country? How do you avoid the trap that both Tunisia and Egypt fell into? And those countries have more of a labor movement they're more organized than algeria has been
1: how can we avoid the egyptian or the tunisian scenario when it comes to to the economic question my answer is first of all you need to be organized and that's for me i feel it's a weakness when it comes to the algerian movement the algerian popular movement there is a kind of a hostility or can i say fear Um, of representations, of organizing, but we start to see some initiatives in that sense. So first, you need to be organized. Second, when you are organized, you need to have a vision. You need to have a strategy rooted in an ideology. So for me, if you have a critique of neoliberal policies, they need to be in your strategy. Um, So the left, need to be strengthening that project. The left need, in a way, to take the chance and the historic opportunity of these, you know, revolutionary moments to mobilize, to organize, to push for an economic analysis, to push for a class analysis, um, to mobilize and push the trade unions to be much more combative even in the case in in the case of Algeria so at the end at the end of the day i think for me it's about the balance of forces on the ground and sometimes you need to be realistic but at the same time you need to be a dreamer but because even if you are weak even if your voice is not heard yet that doesn't mean that it cannot change in the next few months or next few years you just need to strengthen the analysis to mobilize the popular classes, to mobilize the workers, to mobilize the peasants, and create a big front. And I feel that's that's a protracted process in a way.
2: So the people seem at least intent on radically transforming the current system. That's one thing they agree on, even if they have different ideologies and different dreams. They seem agreed on, let's remove the rotten, corrupt system that we're suffering from as we speak. And they will not be distracted. So far, it's been more than six months. They have not been distracted by any of the usual ploys thrown at them by the government. But these ideological divisions we have there, we have some that you call the left. We Mm -hmm. have Islamists of different sorts. We have Berberists. although I'm sure there's a more positive term to call those who are activating for recognition of Amazigh culture in Algeria. We have different agendas there. People have different priorities. How do you bring all these people together towards a truly democratic representative system? What are some of the first steps? We've seen so far a situation where people know what they don't want, but they don't seem to be able to come together to create something yet.
1: In that respect, always it comes, in my view, to your strategy and your vision. So what do you want to achieve? And it depends also on the balance of forces. You cannot work on your own. If we talk about lefty political parties, they are very small and weak. So they cannot work on them. Other opposition parties are very fragmented too. So if all of us want at least a radical democratic transition, I think we need to be working in alliances. We cannot defeat the current military regime in place by being sectarian or by being, how can I, excluding other people from those alliances. So if we agree on a democratic transition that we don't want a military rule, we can work together. But at the same time, you need to keep your autonomy, political autonomy in those spaces for example in my view we need to push for the economic question we need to talk about neoliberalism we need to talk about sovereignty because for me democracy is empty without social and economic justice so those spaces if they are democratic enough and give the voices really to the popular classes because we cannot just talk amongst ourselves the political parties or organizations of the civil society, I feel that those spaces need to have some representatives from the Iraq, from the popular movements. So these spaces need to work together. These alliances need to work together. It's true. It is hard to, you know, to make those things concrete on the ground. There have been a lot of initiatives that started and they have been promising. Initiatives by the civil society, initiatives by some trade unions, the autonomous trade unions, there are even initiatives who are very, very suspicious uh, to myself. Some of them have already failed. Others are trying to build. I've seen an initiative from southern Algeria, which is promising when it is written on paper, when you read it on paper, but making it concrete would bring those ideological differences you're talking about. Mm. Because there are big divides in Algerian societies and we cannot underestimate them, especially the Islamist secular one, what we call laicite, la- laic in Algeria. So that divide supposedly between the secular democratic opposition parties like, like RCD and the Islamists, could be hugely problematic. I'm not sure they can work together, <laughs> but I think we need to go beyond them. If we really want that democratic transition, we cannot afford now to be sectarian and say, no, I cannot work with Islamists. I cannot work with secularists. I cannot work with lefties. I cannot work with liberals. But at the same time, you need, be, uh, you need, you need to be very careful to be not instrumentalized or to end up undermining your own principles.
2: I know it's probably impossible to estimate, but what is your gut feeling in terms of how representative all these different factions are? Are we looking at a, a large plurality of Islamists, for example, versus secularists, or is it the opposite? What are roughly all these different main ideological Tendency representing in in terms of how many people follow them in Algeria. Do you have any idea?
1: So you mean how many people are follow are Islamists or following Islamists and how many people are following right? It's hard to ascertain to be honest, but definitely there are Islamists definitely there are lefties definitely there are liberals but when it comes to organized structures organized powers I think the Islamists have a voice and I feel that the seculars and liberals have a voice too, and you can see in those those initiatives that we've seen from the civil society, there is there is another one from the secularists and some lefty political parties called the Democratic Alternative. By numbers, I'm not so sure. If you don't have a, a transparent democratic elections, it's really hard to know. Right and. And even the Islamist parties that we have right now, they have been co-opted by the regime in place. They worked with the regime in place, and they have been discredited in a way. But still, I'm sure if they go to elections, some people would vote for them. And the other political parties of the oppositions um, that we call secular lefty, they have been weakened and fragmented for decades, Even even like RCD and FFS, which have the Kabili region.
2: Yeah, the RCD yeah. are secularists. They're led by Said yeah. Sadi, who is both a Democrat, but also uh, sort of uh, he has he's a strong voice in, in favor of recognizing Berber culture in the country and Berber language. He's also a neoliberal economically, so it's complicated.
1: <laughs> Saeed Saadi is not is not the uh, president of RCD no more. So there is Mohsen Ibn Abbas. Okay. I think Saeed Saadi left the party like one year or two years ago. Okay. But you're right. They are they are very, well, I could say, extremely secularist. They went with the military coup in 1992 against the Islamists. They are anti-Islamists. That's how I say it. They are neoliberal at the same time. Yeah. But they have some kind of credibility because they've been in the opposition for decades.
2: Starting in 1980, at least, perhaps yeah. even before the Berber Spring. So within the seculars, you have some who are neoliberals, you have some, some that are left, progressive, yeah. radical. Within the Islamists, it seems they all agreed on the economic issue. They're not interested <laughs> They're not interested in socialism, are they? <laughs> <laughs> not, not at
1: all. At least the versions that we have in the whole region, actually, you know. Right. North Africa, I don't see no socialist Islamists. No, all of them are neoliberal. All of them, they don't question the neoliberal orthodoxy at all. So it's a shame, really.
2: All these different forces, many of them have been co opted by the government over the past two decades and they've been in and out of, of the government. So those have lost credibility with a large segment of the population. What are some of the voices that haven't been playing the game and, and do have some credibility? Can you tell us about some of those?
1: Look, you know, there are different levels of co and working inside the regime's institutions. And for me, I don't take like a black or white thing. It's not as if if you entered the parliament, it means you're bad. I, I, I don't take that view.
0: Yeah.
1: But there have been like RCD participated in the parliament and even some of the leaders of the RCD were in government. So there has been even defections from the RCD. And one of the famous one is Khalida Masoudi and the news. The UNIS now has another political party that has been in the presidential coalition around Butafrika. So that's the trajectory of RCD. FFS, from their side, they have been in the oppositions from day one, (laughs) from 1963. I don't think of, I cannot think of any episode where they compromise with the regime, to be honest with you. But they are weak. At the time of the uprisings, they have been going into huge tensions between in the leadership, uh, which is really a bad moment for those things. And there are some other smaller parties, and I don't know if people, a lot of people, know about them. There is uh, Trotskyist party called PST.
2: Yes, Louise Hanoun is in prison, I think, as we speak, isn't she?
1: PST is different, so that's a smaller polit- Trotskyist party. Mm. We- Louisa Hanoun's party is PT, Party de Travail, Workers Workers Party. So Louisa Hanoun, her case is is very complex, is is it, complicated. I really do not understand her. She's a Trotskyist. She has been in the opposition. She has been an activist, feminist, you know, from the 80s. So, she's a respected, you could say, activist and, and feminist. At the economic level, her analysis is very good. She always talks about sovereignty, she talks about nationalisations, but at the political level, I don't know what she did. She was very close to Buteflika. She was defending Butaflika in the name of anti-imperialism. She was saying that, in a way, Buteflika is is a protector of the nation, and we need to support him and in that respect pt her party lost credibility with a lot of people in algeria and for me that's tragic from a left point of view to do that kind of stuff yeah she's she's in prison she has been jailed, I think, for more than two months, if I'm not mistaken. I think in Ramadan. So, yeah, more. Months.
2: Before Ramadan. On what grounds has she been arrested? It sounds to have uh, coincided with the downfall of Butflika and his faction.
1: They're accusing her of conspiracy against the state and the military institution. I don't
2: know. She's very vague. That,
1: yeah, that's that's very vague. And they are saying that she met the president's brother. Saeed Bouteflika, the former boss of the security services, General Tufiq. So I don't know what they discussed, but that's what they've been telling us. And she's not the only political prisoner. There is even former Mujahid, Borega, who is in prison, apparently because he dared to criticize Al-Kaeed Saleh.
2: For our listeners, Mujahid is the term we use in Algeria for those who fought against friends who fought for the liberation of the country. So yes. this, this guy is one of that generation. And, and he's still in jail. And he's still in jail. And yeah. that so far over the past five decades has had a lot of weight. When somebody is from that generation and they are known to have fought against the colonial regime, in favor of independence, that has a lot of prestige, a lot of credibility with people.
1: And on top of that, he's he's a historic figure. It's not he's not just you know from that generation who fought, you know, the colonialists. He's a historic figure. So he was one of, of of the leaders, the military leaders of one of the wilayas, the departments. Algeria was divided into military departments in the war against yes. France. So. It adds much more symbolic and he's and he's a very well respected guy by the opposition. And it seems from from what I've seen that he has been in jail because he dared, because he was very critical of Gayet Saleh.
2: Gayed Saleh, to remind our listeners, Gayet Saleh is the head of the military and currently in power, who most of the population suspects of being the real power in Algeria right now. Now that uh, the president Bouteflika has been ousted, gait Salah. Whenever we refer to gait Salah, that that's uh, ostensibly the the power behind the throne right now.
1: Just to add something on this, uh, Khalil. At the time of Bouteflika, you could say that we had a military regime with a civilian facade or you could say even it was a coalition between civilians and military. Yes. But now, it's just a military regime because even the interim president, Abdel Qadr bin Saleh, can't do nothing without the approval of, of, of the general dictator. The general dictator gives speeches almost every week and he dictates what should be done. He threatens, he accuses people who dare to criticize him or to have a different opinion than his of being traitors. He was the one behind jailing those young activists who were brandishing the Amazigh Berber flag. So, in a way, we are being ruled by um, military right now.
2: This is also the same man who, during the very first few weeks of the revolt, of the rebellion, uh, what some people are calling a revolution, The very first few weeks, he was already comparing the situation in Algeria to the horrible situation in Syria, basically threatening the people of Assad-like reprisals if they didn't just go home.
1: That's what he did. And, you know, he played the game cleverly. At the start, he was threatening, accusing those people of being lost politically. And they want to destabilize the country when he saw that the movement is strengthening and not giving in he tried to manipulate by saying the military would accompany the hirak the popular movement uh, would do everything to get rid the country of al-isaba the mafia so he was very manipulative and he tried at least himself and the people around him because let's not just personalize this in him There are people around him too, the military and other civilians who are interested in maintaining that regime in place. They did everything to divide the movement. They tried the ethnic ethnic identity line between Arab and Amazigh and Berber, it didn't work.
2: They recycled Uh, (laughs) an old tactic of the French. The French tried that before them and it didn't work for the French and they're hoping it will work for them.
1: It didn't work. To be honest, I participated in several protests and witnessed in the it didn't work. Even in the slogans, you see the slogans, the different slogans in every in every march. Always they say Amazigh, Arab, they are brothers. And even, you know, they are accusing of um, Ad Salah as being the traitor and trying to divide them. It didn't work. So they tried other tactics like threats, they tried police violence. They are trying their media propaganda, still, the movement is not wavering. Even during the months of scorching heat, August and July in Algeria are very hot, especially this year. Like you have temperatures
2: 115 degrees and up, yeah. It's been especially bad, not just in Algeria and the Maghreb, but even in Europe. Exactly,
1: but people are still going into the streets every Friday, the students every Tuesday. And for me, this in itself is a big achievement. Because for me, sometimes I get frustrated when I see a lack of organizing, a lack of structures, a lack of vision. But when you see this determination, when you see those numbers of the streets, When you see the creativity of the slogans, to be honest, you feel happy. You say, no, the movement is not broken yet. And the ploys of the regime are not working. So let's hope that this movement will continue. Let's hope that it will organize itself. Let's hope that the political elites, especially the oppositions and the people Um, who have uh, still some credibility and legitimacy, can do something about it, can try to organize those people and give that movement the political representation uh, or reflections that it needs. Because you cannot just continue protesting every Friday. Because for me, I feel that the regime got used to it in a way. You need to escalate that resistance. But you escalate in an organized and structured way.
0: That's Algerian scholar and activist Hamza Hamushan speaking with Khalil Bendib about the ongoing historic protest movement in Algeria its endurance and its promise for the future of the country We'll hear more after a break From Pacifica Radio this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa
2: Clearly, in every situation, not just in Algeria, where a regime is entrenched, clearly each corrupt regime, whether this is in in the Sudan or in Hong Kong or in Russia or in France, people are just waiting out the revolt to get tired and lose steam. And that's been the game of the the regime in Algeria. So what do you do to escalate in a way that's constructive and not give a, a pretext to the authorities to crack down?
1: So for me, when you see like the refusal of the regime to give in into the basic demands of human rights, of even accepting a short democratic transition, because there have been initiatives by civil society, by political parties arguing for a short democratic transition, which I don't subscribe to, because I feel short democratic transitions can bring the status quo again you cannot change things in six months or a year you need a long process a long democratic transition so for me one of the ways to escalate first you need to be organized that's one of the things but one simple thing one simple example that you could do is a general strike by organized trade unions there are some autonomous trade unions that can do that and that are already talk about this in September or October, because the economic situation is really bad in Algeria right now. And there is anticipation that the escalation will be spontaneous. But just to inform you that in the last two weeks, in the last two Friday marches, there has been a new slogan, which is civil disobedience is coming. You can see that the people are frustrated. It's six months that they've been going, like 25 Fridays, it's 25 Fridays, six months that they've been going into the streets, and in a way, they haven't achieved what they wanted. They haven't achieved much, because the regime is still in place. And some people even are saying it's the continuation of the fifth term of <laughs> of Bouteflika, because it's this, the same institutions, the same Parliament, the same Senate, maybe it's a different government, but that government was put by Bouteflika himself. So nothing has been changed. So people, you can feel that there is a frustration and there is a willingness to escalate. So for me, that civil disobedience, I I prefer to start with a general strike before going into civil disobedience, because civil disobedience needs a lot of organizing, needs some structures that can lead it that can give a political content. And even general strikes need to have a political content. They need to have clear demands. Why are you striking? Why are the workers striking? They are striking for something. So that's one way of escalating that resistance. Other ways, you know, learning the lessons or the, or looking at the experiences of other countries, but not necessarily it's gonna work, is by occupying public places by occupying public um, spaces. I'm not sure that would work. Like when I talk with friends and comrades in Algeria, they would say that wouldn't work because we don't have large public spaces or squares. But I'm not sure that's the case. The other thing is combining those general strikes with protests during the week. Because maybe for the the listeners, Friday in Algeria is weekend, is a weekend. So in a way, you're not affecting the economic activities, you're not affecting the economic sectors. So you need to do something at the economic level. You need to affect production in order to bring the regime on its knees. And even that, it's not guaranteed.
2: So when you're talking about general strike and and there are some autonomous, legitimate labor unions there, what is the attitude of the main one, the UGTA, the official union that's always been in cahoots with the government from day one? Are they inflecting their position? Are, are there dissensions between the top brass and the rank and file? What's what's going on with the UGTA? Tell us more about that, that aspect of it.
1: As you said, the UGTA is the, the main and is the biggest trade union in Algeria. Uh, and it has been in bed with the regime for decades. It's um, basically an anti-worker union, always stamping on the neoliberal policies of the regime and the bosses. So with the start of the Hiraq, there have been attempts by some trade unionists from UGTA, basically from the rank and file, to try to cleanse that union from its leadership, from its pro-regime leadership. Unfortunately, that hasn't worked yet. There have been several protests on Saturdays in, in the capital trying to push that trade union and, um, you know, to change its leadership. So in its last AGM, last assembly, that trade union changed the leader. So it's a new president. They have a new president. But it's no better. Basically, it's the same kind of leadership, it's the same political orientation. So for now, that UGTA, I don't think it can play a positive role in the current uprising, unless it's cleansed from the top. And I think there are tensions inside. I'm sure there are a lot of initiatives, there is a lot of struggle inside that union. But for now, it's not yet on the side of the movement. When it comes to the autonomous trade unions even if they are small they can do a lot of stuff as we've seen in the last few years uh, especially um, trade unions in the health and education sector those ones i feel they are very combative they can organize they can mobilize so basically these ones they joined the Hirak early on They organize their own actions and activities, like marches and strikes. And I feel they can play a more preponderant role in September and October if they are planning to organize a general strike. Uh, So let's wait and see. Because I wasn't happy with their wait-and-see attitude in the last few months. Even some of them, in that confederation of trade unions, were preaching for, they were pushing for um, a short democratic transition, which I felt it's a bit weak and can be counterproductive. And some of them also have been involved in proposing names for the new panel for the mediation and dialogue that is ongoing right now. So that panel is very suspect, to say the least, because it has been boycotted by the main political figures by the main opposition parties and it seems it's not pushing for a dialogue but it's a kind of a monologue with the regime so the regime is having a monologue with itself so it's putting some people forward to give the pretence that they are doing a dialogue um, to justify um, the upcoming presidential elections.
2: And when you speak of civil disobedience, tell us a little bit about that idea. What would that entail?
1: So s- civil disobedience means a lot of tactics and activities. So they can start with a general strike. Uh, it, it depends for how long. You can do it every week, you can do it uh, as a longer general strike. Um, and then you can escalate. So you can stop paying bills, electricity, energy. You stop paying taxes. You can use other tactics, occupying public places. So it's different, so it's not just one tactic. That's why I say it needs to be organized. Otherwise, it can be really counterproductive because doing civil disobedience, there will be some negative impacts on people. There will be maybe no, no public services, if you do a general strike, there will be no production, people cannot get their basic needs, maybe stoppages of hospitals and emergency services and that could be problematic. So that's why it needs to be very well organized to minimize those negative impacts on people. So it can be directed towards the regime and it won't like its impact won't come back against you.
2: This question of the military, which has been a recurrent and constant problem not just in Algeria, but in all non-monarchies in the Arab world, or what we call the Arab world, let's say Middle East and North Africa, right after independence you have the military. They just take over, they've got the guns. Even within themselves, the the first big coup we had in 1965 was from a military-backed president to the military period. (laughs) A colonel who said, who needs the façade? So we've had this consistent history of a military deriving its legitimacy from the anti-colonial struggle, the fight uh, for independence. And now, 50 years later, 60 years later, we still have the military, but it's a large institution beyond just the top brass. You also have the rank-and-file people who are themselves from the popular classes. So what do you think the ultimate position of this military will be if push comes to shove and and there's a temptation on the part of Gayet Saleh and others at the top to crack down violently? Will that happen or will the rest of the military refuse to go along as it did in Tunisia, for example?
1: When I think about the Khalil, I get scared because we have the history of the dirty war, the odious war of the 90s. And we saw how the military behaved and how it participated in massacres and what what, what it is capable of. So to say that the military won't use violence against people, I think it's naive. It depends on the context. If it tends to lose a lot of it. When we talk about the military, let's be specific. I'm talking about the high command. I'm talking about the hierarchy or the military bourgeoisie that benefited from uh, plundering the country, from corruption. So I'm talking about those. I'm not talking about the file and rank. Um, because at the end of the day, the military institution is a hierarchical institutions. So the rank and file takes their commands from the generals, from the colonels, you see. So these people are ready to do anything, especially if I feel if the movement escalates. When you escalate resistance, you wouldn't expect that military to just stand and watch. They, uh, people are saying uh, the Algerian uprising is, is peaceful. Yes, it is peaceful. We haven't seen the military shooting down anybody. But there is violence in the streets. Police beating up people, arresting people, um, not letting people travel to Algiers. For me, this is violence, and they they could escalate it. So you're talking about a possibility, maybe for for a military coup, a soft coup inside. I've been thinking about that myself. That would help. I'm sure there are patriotic and nationalist and honest figures in, in, in the Algerian military, whether they are capable of doing something inside or balancing that power, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure. So for me, I tend to say the movement needs to organize itself, the popular masses need to organize themselves, the workers and trade unions, the opposition, at least the legitimate opposition. So we need to to build that front, that popular front and strengthen it, organize it, uh, load it with a political vision and strategy. Because I feel that the struggle is going to be long. Six months, uh, it seems, are not enough. And it's going to take much more. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, Khalil. Yes,
2: yes, very well. Thank you. So uh, what's most striking to close this interview? Thank you for taking the time. To close the interview, I'd like to make one small observation and that is the fact that many people in this one particular instance are not talking about just a rebellion a revolt riots or any such thing they're talking about the revolution which is a very ambitious term and concept and a lot of people are really talking about seriously so that's the most striking thing about this Herak, this movement just tell us why in your opinion it is uh, trying to be a revolution and nothing less?
1: You know, that, that, that discussion is, um, is very important. And I, and I had it with, with some, some friends in the last few months, whether it is a revolution or an uprising or revolutionary process, or just a protest movement. So I know that words are very important, but I feel in that case, some people are missing the point. So, like in the case of the Arab revolutions or the Arab uprisings, uh, when people think about them retrospectively, so they say, okay, I don't like the forces that were mobilized or were leading the uprising, so it means it's not a revolution. Uh, that revolution was not successful, so it means it's not a revolution. So, for me, as long as those from below, uh, as those oppressed popular classes, can no longer take it, and those from the top, from above, though the ruling classes, can no longer rule in the same way, it's a revolutionary process. And revolutions are not, are not short-term. They are long. If, if we think about the French Revolution, for example, It has been defeated in the first few years, but then it took them more than a century to get into a republic. So revolutions usually fail, and they need other revolutions to make them succeed. So my view about the region is that it's going through a long revolutionary process with ups and downs. So, there are some achievements, there are some failures, there are some defeats, but there will be other episodes in this revolutionary process. When it comes to Algeria, um, some people are calling it an outright revolution. They are saying, we don't like the name Hirak, which means um, popular movement. Movement. Uh They say no, we don't like that. It is a revolution because they see the numbers the sheer number i've been there in march i've been in algeria in march and, I, and i've um, witnessed several protests in different parts of the country not not just in algiers millions Khalil, millions in the streets we haven't seen this for a long time at least during my life i haven't seen that i haven't seen it
2: since uh, <laughs> since the french were there i mean since yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. See
1: millions, millions, and for me in itself, it is it is revolutionary. There is an analysis that I learned a lot from. There is a guy; he's an Iranian scholar. Asaf bayat So he wrote a book analyzing the Arab uprisings. It's called uh, "Revolutions Without Revolutionaries." So what he means by it's revolution without revolutionary ideas. He was comparing those Arab uprisings with a previous wave of revolutions, the anti colonial struggle of the 50s and 60s, the Iranian revolution, and he's looking at how they are organized, the political contents of them. So he reached that conclusion that saying those Arab uprisings, which I share the analysis regarding the Algerian uprising so far. When you look at the sheer numbers of people in the streets and it's not just young people, it's young people, old people, men, women, students, like everybody, everybody, all the generations in the streets, you can say it is revolutionary. It is a revolution is is ongoing and it's achieving something. And there is a huge determination and the energy that it is releasing the creativity It's so amazing to see and when I was there I felt that Algeria is going through a revolutionary moment but then when you look at the content you look at how these movements are organized how they are structured what is the political content what is their strategy what are they saying um you'll find that it's they're asking broad demands of freedom Um, democracy uh, it's not very specific they are not linking the economic to the political Um, they refuse representations there is no strong organizations or intellectuals leading leading that movement you feel that it is not revolutionary enough but for me at the end of the day what matters and what the questions that we need to ask ourselves whether these uprisings are revolutionary enough to withstand the forces of counter-revolutions, which are much more entrenched Which have much more means uh, Which have propaganda? Um, uh, in their hands and in that respect I feel that the Sudanese uprising has been better because they had they had an organizations they had umbrella organizations leading the movements calling for protests they endowed the movement with a platform a progressive platform talking about workers rights talking about women's rights talking about that constituent assembly a long democratic transition but even though even if you have those leading organizations, nothing is guaranteed because from what i've seen they accepted a deal with um, the military Uh, i talk in, in sudan where the military would be ruling for at least the two first years. So for me, I feel that's that's very dangerous. So even if I felt that is, um, it's very promising, mm. but uh, when they negotiated with the military,
2: oh yeah, even there, uh, it's it's not, not no guarantee. I no, see.
1: it's okay. it's it's not guaranteed because the military now, I think. They're going to rule the country. They're going to be ruling that uh, transitional council for the first two years, which is it opens the door to many things.
2: Right, right.
1: But I remain hopeful, even though I emphasize the point uh, to my Algerian comrades and friends that we need to be much more organized because, because the struggle will be long.
0: Hamza Hamushin is an Algerian campaigner, writer, researcher, and a founding member of the London-based Algeria Solidarity Campaign and Environmental Justice North Africa. His writings have appeared in a number of publications, including The Guardian, New Internationalist, Jadalia, Open Democracy, and The Huffington Post. You can read his latest piece, titled The Arab Spring Lives On in Algeria, in Jacobin magazine. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
2: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios
0: in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email At vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.